Perhaps you've heard of a woman named Dr. Helen Rosevier. She was a missionary. She still living today. She was a missionary to Zaire. And if you ever have an opportunity to read about her and her testimony and her ministry, I hope that you'll take advantage of that. She told the following story about something that happened in Zaire. Quote, a mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. She tried to improvise, or we tried to improvise an incubator to keep the infant alive. But the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her sister. One of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, underneath some of the clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly started digging deeper and saying, if God sent that, I'm sure he will send a doll, and she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance that child's sincere request, and five months earlier, he had led a ladies' group to include both of those specific articles, unquote. You know, I had an opportunity these, in the past couple of days, there was Mission Fest Seattle, a large gathering of mission organizations and thousands of people who gather in order to be encouraged by the workshops, the testimonies, the music from various cultures around the world and people gather. It was held this past couple of days and one of the joys that I had was running into a number of missionary friends and finding out in their encouragement that they had been praying for me for my recovery people from around the world, and they asked how it was doing. It was a good and encouraging time to see people and to hear and be encouraged by their prayers. And it's always encouraging when people pray for you and lift you up before the Lord. And perhaps I thought to myself, that is why the Lord here in this particular chapter prays in such a way. Within the hearing of his own disciples, in the longest prayer that is recorded between he and God the Father, for us to read, because for us to know that Jesus is praying for us, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us, is what he does for us, times that we have that are difficult. Christ prays for us, and his disciples needed that encouragement His disciples needed that encouragement because, you see, for three straight years they had followed the Lord Jesus and now the Lord Jesus was told them soon he won't be with them, that he was going to leave, that he was going to suffer, that he was going away where they could not go immediately. They needed that encouragement. They were going to be leaderless. And so the Lord Jesus prays for them. He prays for the 11 disciples here in particular with extension and application to us. 
So we took a look at this section of text in which Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. Last week we looked at Christ and his prayer that he might be glorified, that God would bring or have glory. Here he prays for his disciples and we begin in verse 6 where he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. His prayer for the disciples begins by saying, I have manifested your name. That is what Jesus came to do, to bring people to know God, that they might bring glory to God. And the name of God in the Old Testament is just not an identification name, like, you know, John Boy or Joe Blow or whoever. Names in the Bible meant more than mere identification. They tended to be a reflection, a reflection of who a person was. Abigail's husband in the Old Testament, his name was Nabal. His name meant fool because he foolishly did not provide for David and his men. Abraham, his name, before it was changed to Abraham, his name was Avram or Abram, meaning exalted father, named likely after a pagan god. But God in Genesis changed his name to Abraham or Avraham, meaning father of many, because God was going to multiply his descendants as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Name of Isaac, his son, is an automatopoetic name, meaning he laughs because when Sarah heard that she was going to have a child, she was 80 at the time and barren, and it wasn't until she was 90 when she gave birth, when she first heard that she was going to bear a child, she laughed. And yet, God fulfilled his promise and gave her a child at the age of 90, and she named him Isaac, meaning he laughs. It's Yitzhak, and it's supposed to sound like laughter. Yitzhak, Yitzhak, Yitzhak. Names meant something in the Bible. Names had meaning, and Christ was promoting God, bringing glory to God when he says, I have manifested your name. That means that it is everything that God represents, his character, his person. And in contrast to our world today, you know, when people in our world want to promote their own name, promote their own fame, promote their own accomplishments, promote everything, bring glory to themselves, that is not what Christ has called us to do. Our job is to promote God, to promote his name, to promote his glory, We need to get out of the way. And if nobody remembers us but remembers God, then wouldn't that be great? It's not only the name of God, but repeatedly, as he says here in verse 6, the writer points out that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ a redeemed people, as we went over last week, from eternity past in the mind of God, God conceived of the plan of redemption before time began. And a promise was made in eternity past that he would give a gift to his son. That promise was born out as a love gift of a redeemed people. And seven times within this particular chapter alone, it emphasizes that God the Father gave to his son a redeemed people. 
Verse 6, they were yours and you gave them to me. Verse 9, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours, etc. Furthermore, not only are we a gift from God the Father to God the Son, but in the text, it says of the 11 disciples, they have kept your word. They have kept your word. Now, when we look at the lives of the disciples, we know they were sort of a ragamuffin group of people who were not always the best. They had their hang-ups. They had their sin that they struggled with. But the fruit of their lives was a genuineness of obedience that stayed. Their obedience didn't earn them their salvation. The fact that they remained with Christ, even through difficult times, even though the crowds left, they still followed Christ. They didn't fully understand everything. They didn't live perfect lives. But the fruit of their salvation was borne out by the characteristic of obedience. The characteristic of obedience. Obedience and salvation are inextricably linked. As one is the byproduct of the other. In John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, this is what he said, If you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. In other words, those who don't walk with God, those who don't truly follow God, if they don't continue in his word, are not truly his disciples. Because genuine salvation, a genuine Christian is characterized by obedience. Not only that, these disciples, they, they accepted, they came to understand, they believed the word of Christ, they believed the person of Christ, verse 7 and 8. Christian is one who believes what the scriptures say about who Jesus is. Today, you see there are plenty of religion scholars, people who teach the Bible, even that do not believe what the scriptures say. They claim, perhaps, to be Christians, but they are always trying to find the real Jesus. They will say that they believe, but in their heart, they look at the word of God and they surmise that Jesus didn't really say what he said. It was some other author who wrote that. Or Jesus didn't really do what he said. That was somebody else who wrote that. The Bible isn't quite accurate, they would say. No, instead, these so-called scholars are looking for some Jesus behind the pages and they will promote, which sometimes you may hear on the news, they will promote that perhaps Jesus was just some ordinary human being who lived an extraordinary life. And they're looking for a Jesus who was perhaps married, perhaps had a family, perhaps had children, perhaps buried someplace, and that the church is somehow hiding this huge secret from the world Pure fiction reveals more about them and their view of the authority of the word of God than it does about who Jesus is. For the scriptures tell us plainly what Jesus said, what he did, and who he was. And just as these disciples 
were following the Lord. They came to understand, to believe, to accept, to embrace the truth of what he said, the word of God and the person of Christ. Verse 8, Jesus said in a relationship to the word that he spoke, they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. And so he prays for his disciples, the 11 that were here. And he prays for us as well. He prays for us as well, which is one of the ministries of Christ after he died and rose again. In Hebrews 7.25, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to make intercession for them. He prays for you and for me. And he is able to save forever those who come to Christ because of his prayers for us. Romans 8.34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, it says, who also intercedes for us. Christ prays for you and for me. That is his ministry now. Continually defends us against the accuser, Satan. Just as Satan came before God in the book of Job, and he accused God of protecting Job. And he said, in effect, to God, Do you know why Job listens and follows you? Why he is so devout? It's because you bless him so much, because you give him so many things. You strip all of that away, and Job will curse you. And God said, What? Well, we'll let you, we'll let you do what you will. Just don't touch his life. You can't touch his life. And Satan brought calamity upon Job by the permission of God. And yet Job's faith remained faithful to him. Christ prays for us. And what does he pray in specific? He prays for our security. He prays for our joy. And Christ prays for our holiness. He prays for our eternal security. Verse 11 first. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. He prays for our spiritual security. He's about to leave them, and he prays that God the Father would keep them in your name. Now, Christ is praying for our spiritual security in our relationship with God himself when he says, keep them in your name. A.C. Gabeline, in his commentary, explains, quote, that keeping means everything. Keeping from falling away, from evil doctrines, from being overcome by sorrow, or tribulation and suffering, keeping them in life and death. From the first petition of our Lord's Prayer, we learn the absolute security of a true believer. If a true believer, one who belongs to Christ, who has been given by the Father to the Son, for whom the Son of God intercedes, can be lost, it would mean the loss of Christ's glory, the loss of the part of the travail of his soul. In other words, 
Christ prays for our security, and it is a guaranteed security. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, just one book over, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. The Lord Jesus emphasizes this in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. The Lord Jesus says to Peter, Simon, 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 behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. See, here comes Satan. Here comes Satan demanding. In other words, Satan can't do something without the permission of God. Has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But verse 32 says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you once, when you turned again, strengthen your brothers. Christ prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And his prayer for us is the same, that we would be kept by the Father, spiritually safe, completely secure. This is true for all believers. In John chapter 10, verse 29, it says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is what we call the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security. Once you are truly saved, once you have come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, once Christ has redeemed your soul because you've come in repentance of sin and embraced the cross, knowing who Christ is, what he has done, who you are, and you've come to the foot of the cross to receive salvation and forgiveness from God, knowing that you can't do anything to merit your own salvation, once you are truly saved, you are always truly saved. Now, that is not to say that salvation is some type of fire insurance where someone prays a prayer, and they pray a prayer, and they, quote-unquote, get saved, and then they go on to live however they want to live, that they go on walking their own way, living a life that they want to live, and they're continually to be Saved, no. A truly saved person's life will change. Will change. Just as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. And as we noted before, obedience is inextricably linked to a person who is truly saved. They will follow God albeit imperfectly like these disciples, but it will be a pattern of their life. It will be a pattern of their life. They do not exhibit a pattern of their life. Then, no matter what they may have claimed in the past, no matter what they may have done in the past, is not genuine. If you turn with me to John chapter 6, it's very evident here. John chapter 6, you remember, perhaps even in children's stories, about the feeding of the 5,000. But the feeding of the 5,000, this is very evident, even in the words that are used here in the text of Scripture in John chapter 6. Jesus says in John 6.35, Jesus says after he had fed 5,000, and you realize that's 5,000 men, they're women and children, so 
likely there's probably 15,000 or maybe even 20,000 folks that are there along near the Sea of Galilee and they are hungry and the sun is going down and Jesus multiplies the food such that there is food for everyone. And after he uses that, he, he takes that situation and he uses it as a backdrop to what he's about to say in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So he takes a context, and he masterfully illustrates it for them, and he tells them, you know what? The food that you want, the bread that you've just eaten, I am the bread of life. It's a metaphor. What was their response? Verse 42, look down. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling. They were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? See, he continued on and expanded on that idea, and they were upset. They were upset. Not only that, John 6, 66, you look down in that passage. He began to teach them difficult things, and this is what they said. What happened was, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There are those who are genuine disciples and those who are superficial disciples, disingenuine. They left. They weren't walking with him anymore. In fact, that's how the ministry of Jesus was when you look at the panorama of the ministry of Jesus. He began with his first sign of changing water to wine, the miracle at Cana. Then people began to take notice when he went to the Feast of Tabernacles and he overthrew the tables of the money changers and he began to propagate what was true, began to do miracles and speak and preach and his popularity grew and as his popularity grew so did the opposition and as the opposition grew Jesus began to confront false teaching and he began to teach the word of God clearly and share about the meaning of scripture and the fulfillment of prophecy in him and that he was God and it became more and more challenging and difficult for people to accept, and they began to fade away and question him. The fickleness of the crowd, the superficiality of those who followed Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, the scriptures also tell us about the protective power of God. For the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So Peter praises God for the salvation which we've received through Jesus Christ and his resurrection so that we might have an inheritance imperishable, reserved in heaven for us. Verse 5, who are protected us 
by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. God protects those who come to him. And in this verse 6, we greatly rejoice in 1 Peter, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. He writes to these believers, you have various trials that have come. You've been distressed by them, but there is joy. Why? Because you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is going to be revealed. Verse 7, it says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, one of the purposes of trials in your life and in my life is to prove, to show for you and to others the genuineness of your salvation. The genuineness of your salvation. Whether or not you will stick with it. And it is Christ who prays for us and prays for our security The true nature of our salvation will show that we have eternal security. And all of this, as we return to John 17, Jesus prays, he says, the following verses, so that they may be one even as we are. They may be one even as we are. So the question is, in what way does Jesus pray that we would be one to understand this, there's a difference, you see, between outward, outward unity and inward spiritual unity. What Jesus is praying for here is not some superficial outward unity. You know, some people say this is what Christ wants, that we're to be some sort of ecumenical group and to put aside whatever differences that we have. Some people say, look, Christ doesn't like all of these Groups, churches, all these denominations, all these divisions. He wants us to be all part of one big church, one perhaps for every city, all gathering underneath one tent, and let's have a big group hog and sing together. You realize the implication of that when you look at this particular passage? The implication of that is that Jesus' prayer here, in which Jesus always prays for the will of God, hasn't been answered. The implication is that Jesus asked for something and it's not working. His prayer hasn't been answered. Even the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had their differences and they went their own way. That is not to say that God doesn't desire that we would all agree. But even since the early church, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians would have their differences. This passage isn't in reference to some outward superficial unity. It's not saying that Jesus prayed to God the perfect prayer and it hasn't been answered. That's not right. True outward unity is centered around truth. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, which was splintered. And in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree... That there be no division among you, but what? That you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
John MacArthur writes, being of the same mind and the same judgment rules out grudging or hypocritical unity. Unity must be genuine. We're not simply to speak the same thing while keeping our disagreements and objections to ourselves, making a pretense of unity. Unity that is not of the same mind and judgment is not true unity. In other words, even outward unity needs to be based upon what is true. That is true unity that expresses itself in an outward manifestation. True unity is expressed and surrounded, surrounds what is true. Jesus is praying here for spiritual unity. Just as Jesus and God are one, It's not some superficial outward unity that Christ is praying for. Again, of course, that is God's desire that we would have that. But it is to be centered around what is true. But here in this context, he is praying for spiritual unity. And that unity that Jesus is praying for has already been and is being answered by God. See, when a Christian... When a person becomes a Christian, wherever they're at in the world, when they come to Christ and they receive the Lord Jesus as Savior, they receive that gift of eternal life, they receive the Spirit of God which baptizes them into the church. And they are one with us in the body of Christ. Sometimes theologically it is called the invisible church or the universal church. They are a part of the church. They are a part of the body of Christ. When we meet somebody in another country, they are our brother and our sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. And spiritually speaking, we are one with them. Despite disagreements or misunderstandings or whatever it may be, they are one. They are a part of the body of Christ. So to say that it's merely outward unity that Jesus is praying for here is not correct. True unity has already been answered and is being answered as people come to know Christ. This is about the spiritual unity of the church. And the result, this is the result of God who keeps our salvation secure. Who, through the Lord Jesus Christ who is praying that we be secure in our salvation, that no one is lost out of the body of Christ from the hand of God. God keeps our salvation secure. Do you realize if Jesus didn't pray for you and for me, our salvation would be lost? And in this prayer, there is one exception, the son of perdition, a term referring to Judas, who betrays Christ. So he prays for his disciples, first for their security, and secondly for their joy. He prays for their joy. Now I come to you, verse 13, that these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy, my joy, made full in themselves. Not only would these disciples note that Jesus was directly asking God the Father on their behalf, but they would receive joy. Now this is the third time that the entire evening that Jesus speaks of giving them joy. And that must have been encouraging for them to hear. After all, they had had plenty of bad news. But you see, true joy happens when it is given by God. True joy 
happens when it is given by God despite one's circumstances. Joy is different, you see, than happiness. Happiness comes from the root of the idea of happenings. And happiness is dependent upon the circumstances in your life. You're, you're happy when things go well. You're sad when things don't go well. It can go up and down. And Jesus doesn't pray for their happiness. He prays for their joy. Because joy is enduring. It is a settled joy that comes in your life because all is well with you and God. And that your trust and joy, and, and joy is that God is in control. That God has secured your salvation. He has secured your inheritance in heaven. He has a place for you no matter what the circumstances are. There's an overriding and undergirding joy and peace in your heart. You know, I remember when I first heard that I had a tumor in my head. I remember where I was and what I was doing. I, was, uh, I had picked up a, the MRI out of a DVD. You know, they give you the DVD of your pictures of, of the scans of your head, and you can get one. And I was coming out of the, the hospital, and it was confirmed. And I remember that afternoon. It was a nice, sunny afternoon, and I didn't know what was going on. I mean, it was as if you had an elevator and somebody hit the emergency stop button and everything stops and the alarm goes off and I had no idea what was happening. The first thought that came to my mind, I remember, was, wow. And I, I, I like to learn. And I thought to myself, how, how interesting. I get to have a tumor. Not everyone gets to have a tumor in their head. But then I realized as well, there was a sadness that came that afternoon because of the circumstances. I didn't know what God had in store for me. I didn't know uh, details. I didn't know what a prognosis might be. I had no understanding of what I had. All I knew was that it didn't sound good. But the sadness only lasted for about an afternoon because God, in his grace, gave me a sense of joy and a sense of peace. Uh, the future, the excitement, actually, that was there was interesting. And I uh, continued to uh, trust that God had all that he had for me planned. And I'll tell you, right after I found out, every single evening, I slept soundly. I slept soundly because God had given me that peace and that joy in my heart. Unlike sometimes the insomnia that I struggle with right now, he had given me that sense that he would work all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. A couple of hundred years after the death of Jesus, there was a man, a third century man, who was anticipating his death. And this is what he wrote. He wrote these last words to a friend. He said, quote, It's a bad world. An incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. 
These people are the Christians. And I am one of them, unquote. We sing a song that is based on John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I don't know what's happening in your life. You may be facing some difficulties and problems which you perhaps struggle with that no one else knows. But the Spirit of God can give you that peace, can give you that joy, can give you that settledness when you walk with Him. The Scriptures say that the path of the sinner is hard. The sinner has difficulties in life. They have no joy. But the one who relies on God, trusts in His security, receives that peace, receives that joy. Christ prays for our security, he prays for our joy, and he prays for our holiness. He prays for our holiness. Not our happiness, but our holiness. Verse 14. I have given them your word, it says, and the word has hated them because they are not of the world. The world has hated them. Even though I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The third focus of Christ's prayer is not just for their security and for his disciples' joy that it might be full in him, but that they would be sanctified, that they would be holy. That word sanctified means set apart, to be separate, to be dedicated, to be consecrated, to be purified. Unlike those you see who think that to be holy, you've got to somehow be in some convent or commune or monastery, Jesus is not praying that we would be taken out of the world. In fact, just the opposite, that we would just be protected from the evil one. But that we would be in the world. They say they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're in the world, but not of it, as the old saying goes. We are in the world, but not of it. We are not to be people who are worldly. Who are worldly. One author writes, quote, worldliness is rarely even mentioned today, much less identified for what it is. The word itself, referring to worldly, is beginning to sound quaint. Worldliness is a sin of allowing one's appetites, ambitions, or conduct to be fashioned according to earthly values. 1 John 2, 16, 17 says, all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and all its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The author continues, and he writes, quote, Yet today, we have the extraordinary spectacle of church programs designed to explicitly cater to fleshly desires, sensual appetites, and human pride. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. To achieve this worldly appeal, 
Church activities often go beyond the merely frivolous. Churches are employing innovations to keep worship services from becoming dull. In the past half decade, some of America's largest evangelical churches have employed worldly gimmicks like slapstick, vaudeville, wrestling exhibitions, and even mock striptease to spice up their Sunday meetings. No brand of horseplay, it seems, is too outrageous to be brought into the sanctuary. Burlesque is fast becoming the liturgy of the pragmatic church. Moreover, many in the church believe this is the only way that we will ever reach the world. If the unchurched multitudes don't want biblical preaching, we are told, we must give them what they want. Hundreds of churches have followed precisely that theory, actually surveying unbelievers to learn what it is, what it would take to get them to attend, unquote. That's not being sanctified, set apart, consecrated, pure. But suffice it to say, that is the trend. Churches for many years now, and still has been, appealing to worldly desires. And some Christians are more worldly than they are godly. They love the world more, it seems, than they love Christ. They talk like, dress like, act like, behave like, spend their time, spend their money, just like a non-Christian would do. And some try to justify it, saying, you know what? You've got to be like the world in order to attract the world. You've got to be like the world in order to make them interested in God. You've got to talk like them, act like them, dress like them, or whatever it may be. So they speak in off-color language, or they behave like the world, pursue the things of the world. Would we say that Jesus became more worldly, acted more like the Pharisees, talked like the scribes in order to attract them to God? No, that is not what Jesus would do. In fact, he was just the opposite. It's countercultural. He tells us in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, don't worry. Here he speaks of anxiety. Don't worry what we will eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. Don't be like the Gentiles chasing after all of the things that the world would dangle in front of you. And John the Apostle writes in 1 John, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the question for you and I is, what is our life like? What would your friends and your family say about you? Are you more worldly than you are godly? Is your discipleship merely superficial? Or is your life so different that people notice? Do your coworkers or your fellow students know that you're a Christian and you're not ashamed of it? That you are not ashamed to be who you are, practice your faith, even at work? Do they notice? Do they know? You know, I was down at Ikea the, last month and I, I was walking down one of the aisles and there was a guy there and he was obviously taking his afternoon prayer time right in the aisle with a little cloth and he was bowing and he motioned to me not to cross his path. He was a Muslim. The display of faith in your life for Christ 
Is that obvious to those who know you? Or are you just like everyone else? And they would be surprised if you were a Christian. So how can we be in the world but not of it? The Word of God tells us in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Being sanctified comes because of the truth of the Word of God. Being sanctified or set apart or changed or holy comes because of the truth of the Word of God in your life. And the Apostle Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2.2. He says, like newborn babes earnestly long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Spiritual growth and change comes by means of the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that is true. It is the Word of God that is true. Notice that it doesn't say your Word contains truth, as some would say. Some would say, well, it's not the Word. It's what the Word communicates. It contains the Word of God. But it's not just ideas or thoughts or suggestions. Each and every word, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed. It is inspired by God Himself. This is the word of the living God. And their sanctification, these disciples' sanctification as well as ours, comes by the truth of the word of God. And that is what Jesus prays for, our holiness, our sanctification. And it is for our sakes, Jesus says he sanctifies himself, verse 19, that they themselves may be sanctified, what? In truth. That Jesus was going to set himself apart to do all that God had called him to do. He was going to go to the cross and die for our sins and be resurrected so that we might have life and that we might be sanctified by means of the word of God. Christ prays for us. And he prays for us that we would be sanctified by the word of God. That we would be set apart wholly different than the world that our lives might shine brightly for Him. Is that what we pray for? Do we pray for our own lives, for our children, for our family, for our spouse, that they would be more and more holy, that they would be set apart, that they would grow far beyond the superficial things perhaps that we might pray for? Do we pray for their spiritual walk with God each and every day? That's what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed that they would be kept secure. He prayed that they would have a joy no matter what the circumstances are in life. And he prayed that they would be sanctified, holy, and set apart. That is what he prays for. And what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is for us to pray for others. To pray for others. To bless them with our prayers as well knowing that Christ prays for us, that we might touch their life, that they might come to know Christ and know the security of having an inheritance laid up for them in heaven, which nothing can destroy, that they would experience the joy that comes no matter what happens in life, and that they would experience knowing what it is to be a clean vessel, sanctified by God for every good work. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word.
for thy word is true. And we pray, O God, that you would use it, O Father, in our lives, that we might be pure, holy, and pleasing to you. Our Father, at this time, we pray that you would look into each and every person's heart. For every heart is laid bare before you. Nothing is hidden from your eyes. And we pray, O God, that you would cleanse us from our sin, that we would be vessels clean for your work. May we, O Father, be a repentant people who have no idols in our heart that are greater than you. God, I pray, may we, by your refiner's fire, purify us, O God, for your glory and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.